privilege it is to hear from the voice of God today as he speaks through the Gospel of John. Be in chapter 18, verse 33 to 38. It says this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you give us understanding as Pastor Wayne comes and exposits your word this morning. May we just be struck this morning of how great a love that you have for us through Jesus Christ, of how great a sacrifice it is for him to go to the cross and to be sacrificed on behalf of others. This morning, may we, may we grasp deeper and wider in our understanding of this love that Christ had for us. That we might understand the very question that Pilate asked, what is truth? So I pray just now that you are clear through Pastor Wayne, that it is clear to us as you speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in our text today, it's, uh, as you know, early Friday morning. It's Passover week. It's 30 A.D. Earlier that week, on Monday, having raised Lazarus from the dead, Christ entered Jerusalem to the shouts of tens of thousands of Jews. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. He then goes over and he cleanses the temple of all those den of thieves that were, were turning a, a house of prayer into a place of business. He then went back to the temple, began teaching them truth through the I am statements concerning his divinity. He then went and met with his disciples in the upper room of a home of one of his friends where he was transitioning from the observance of Passover to the implementation of the Lord's Supper as the fulfillment of those 1,500 years of putting the blood of the Lamb above the door. He is the fulfillment of that Old Testament picture who ushers in the new covenant whereby men's sins will be covered by his blood. He then leaves that upper room and takes his disciples towards the 
Garden of Gethsemane, praying for them as he goes. When he gets to the garden, of course, that is where Judas arrives with a thousand or more Roman soldiers along with the temple police and members of the Sanhedrin. They have come there to search for him in the middle of the night, early hours of the morning. When they find him, they arrest him and take him to Annas, the former high priest, the godfather of Israel, who sends him over to Caiaphas, that's his son-in-law, who serves currently as the high priest. He sends him over there to be formally found guilty of blasphemy for telling the truth that he is both man and God. After paying witnesses to testify against him, he's declared guilty in two separate illegal trials, just hours apart. He is guilty of being both divine and human. He's then taken to Pilate's makeshift headquarters, about a two-minute walk from Caiaphas's place, where a request is made of the Roman governor who has the power and the authority to publicly crucify him. They are requesting that he be declared a threat to the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That makes him a threat to Caesar and Caesar's power. Now, there's no evidence of that. There have been no witnesses to that. There's been no testimony given to that. He has no intentions of overthrowing the Roman government. However, he is a threat. He is a threat to the money-making schemes of the corrupt Sanhedrin. And he's been exposing their hypocrisy. And he's very, very popular. Raising the dead, healing people the way he has, the way he teaches with authority. He is extremely popular with the Jews. And that's a threat to the Jewish power, the Sanhedrin. And so if he exposes their hypocrisy, if he gets enough Jews all roused up to follow him, they say that is a threat to Rome itself. And so Caiaphas had declared back in chapter 11 of John, it's really better for this man to die than for us to lose our power and our control. Now behind the sins of men, both Jew and Gentile, is the predetermined plan of God Almighty to redeem and to reconcile a people to himself for his glory. Which, by the way, because of his holiness, he cannot do that. The Lord cannot reconcile us. He cannot redeem us. Unless there is someone who, being fully God, can satisfy what his divine nature demands. And being fully human and without sin can make atonement for sinners. That's the only way that he can do that. So without desiring nor causing men to sin, the Lord fulfills his plan as revealed throughout scripture to redeem a people to his own glory through the death of Christ. Now Christ knows all of this before he ever enters into humanity. So he's been teaching his disciples about it. He's been preparing them for this very moment. Although they won't fully understand it until after the resurrection. So Pilate, as we saw last week, he's married to the granddaughter of the Roman emperor Tiberius. His primary job is to keep the peace, which he hasn't done a very good job of on several occasions. The Sanhedrin has made an accusation that Christ claims to be a king. After discussing this matter with them, Pilate comes back into his headquarters and he doesn't see Christ as someone who is leading a revolution against Rome. 
And so I was trying to put myself into his shoes. What must he be thinking at this moment? He's heard what they have said. He knows what he has seen. How do you reconcile those two things? And so Pilate may have been thinking, you know, I don't really trust these Sanhedrin guys out here. I mean, they've caused me a lot of heartache to this point. They've never, to be honest with you, they've never really cared about someone threatening my power. If anything, they probably would support this guy if they thought he was going to rally Israel against me. There's something not right about this. And my wife has been having nightmares about it. So to be honest, as much as I enjoy executing Jews, I'm not so sure this is going to be a wise thing to do. Now, Luke tells us that when Pilate instructed them to deal with Christ themselves, they responded by saying, you know, Christ refuses to pay taxes to Caesar, and he's encouraged us to not render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That was, of course, a lie. Christ had never said such a thing. He had always upheld the government's right to levy taxes on its citizens. He had always paid his taxes. So Pilate comes back inside to examine Christ himself. He hears these accusations. It doesn't line up with what he has been seeing. And so he gets straight to the point. Are you the king of the Jews? And so Jesus asked him, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Which one is it? See, Christ already knows the answer to that. But he's trying to clarify it for Pilate. Are you asking if I am a king? in a political sense, conspiring against Caesar? The answer to that is obviously no. There is no evidence to that. There is no testimony to that. There's no witnesses to that. The only testimony to that are, are lies. Of course that's not true. Now, did they put you up to asking, am I the messianic king who fulfills all scripture? If that's the case, then the answer is yes, of course. Of course. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. I am who I am, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I've been teaching that in the temple area all week, out in the open. Everybody has heard it. Everybody has heard the truth. So are you asking this because you are interested in truth? Is that why you're asking? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? What have you done? Am I asking this on my own accord? Of course not. Am I a Jew? And I'm not privy to their reasons for making such outlandish accusations against you. I mean, you don't look like someone who would lead a revolt. I mean, you didn't even resist when they came to arrest you. And I'm not aware of anything that you've done that threatens me or Rome. So why, tell me, why are these Jewish authorities asking me to put one of their own to death? I don't like these guys. I don't trust these guys. So tell me, what is the explanation for why they are demanding I kill you? What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Do you see how honest Christ is here? He doesn't deny it. He doesn't mislead them. He doesn't deceive them as to who he is. 
But since his kingdom is not a political power system like Rome, which is the reason his servants are not out there being trained for guerrilla warfare. He's not a part of the zealot party. One of his disciples is, Simon the zealot. He called him out of that party to come and to follow him. But Christ is not of that mindset. You know, if I were a political king, if I were a king in a political sense, the Jews would have never turned me over to you. Are you kidding me? They'd only been too happy for me to use my divine power to take charge of you and all of Rome. Just like Judas Maccabeus had done 200 years earlier. But the truth is, the truth is, the kingdom over which I reign is not from this world. So you are a king. Jesus said, you say I'm a king. I mean, for this purpose, I've come into this world to bear witness to the truth. See, my existence didn't begin with birth, as is the case with you. I came into this world, the pre-existent, eternal God and creator wrapped in human flesh. Why? To bear witness to truth. To bear witness to truth. You understand, Pilate? I don't, I, I don't come to conquer nations like Caesar. I come to conquer evil. I, I don't come to establish a temporary political system. I rule over an eternal kingdom that exists to the glory of God. Caesar reigns over bodies of men. I reign over the souls of men. The strength of Caesar is in his citadels and his armies. My kingdom, my kingdom, the power of my kingdom is in the saving divine word of truth. Of truth. And you know what? Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. All my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Pilate's confused. What is truth? How would you answer that? What is truth? Truth is Christ. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? No man comes to the Father but by me. Truth is not simply the teaching about God by Christ. Truth is God revealed in Christ. To know truth is not to know about the Lord. To know truth is to know the Lord through our new birth in Christ. See, here's what Pilate didn't understand. Pilate's not getting this. <laughs> he doesn't understand that truth is not just ethical virtues. Truth is not just a philosophical concept. No, truth is the Lord from which we get, from which we get the ethical virtues. Truth is the Lord from whom we get the philosophical concepts. That's why there's such a huge difference between knowing about truth and knowing the truth. That's the reason that only when you have the spirit of truth within you, that you can worship the Lord in spirit and truth. 
If you don't know Christ, you, you can know all about truth. You can know all about it. And still live according to lies. Pilate doesn't know the Lord. So to him, you know, truth is not an absolute thing. To him, truth is somewhat subjective. It comes from humanity. It can be relative. It can be pragmatic. And that's why he doesn't even wait for an answer. He doesn't wait for an answer as to what is truth. He goes back after the Jews and he says, I find no guilt in him. He's absolutely no threat to the Roman Empire. He keeps talking about a kingdom that's not of this world based on truth. I don't even understand that. But I can tell you this, he's no threat to the Rome, to the Romans. None. Now, you don't see what happens between verses 38 and 39 because John doesn't repeat what Luke has already recorded. But if you go to Luke 23 and you see the same text there where it says, Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. What happens after that? Well, they're all stirred up. They're protesting. He is guilty of sedition. I'm telling you, he is forbidden us to pay taxes to Caesar because he claims to be a king. Now, that ought to strike you as odd. You know why? Because notice how artfully they, they, they combine truth with error. Which still goes on today, right? We, we see this in our politicians, don't we? We see this in our media. Sometimes we see this in pulpits. Say, see what? You see liars. You see liars who will take a nugget of truth and they'll spin it in a way that deceives. So here's their spin. If a king is one who rules over a kingdom, right? He would never encourage his people to follow a rival king. Therefore, ergo, he would never tell us to support Caesar. You see their spin there? I mean, Christ said exactly what he meant. What did he say? He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to the Lord what is the Lord's. They take this, this, this nugget of truth that there's a kingdom over which he rules and they spin it into a lie. And according to Luke, they claim that he stirs up problems throughout Judea from Galilee to Jerusalem. That too was a lie. But Pilate heard, Galilee? Did you say Galilee? Yeah. That's where Christ has spent most of his time on earth. He is from Nazareth of Galilee. That's why they call him Jesus of Nazareth. And not only that, but after he healed the man there in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, back in John 5, and they began to plot his death, where does he go? His time had not yet come. He had not yet finished preparing the disciples through ministry for his, his time to, to ascend to the Father and for them to usher in the church through the proclamation of the gospel. That was not in place yet. And so he goes north to where? Galilee. There's where he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. That's where he goes throughout the Decapolis healing people, making the blind to see and the lame to walk. He heals lepers and he casts out demons. It's where he spends the majority of his time in ministry until his time comes. Once his time comes, then he comes back to Jerusalem to die. And so Pilate says, so he's from Galilee. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. 
It so happens we have a Galilean judge in town for Passover. Send him over to Herod. I'm done with this. God bless you. Have a good day. But I'm not going to let you manipulate me with your nonsense. I'm going back to bed and tell my wife that you didn't get away with it. Thank you very much. I'm out of here. Pilate's attempt to dodge personal responsibility is to send Christ to Herod. Who is this Herod? Well, he's known as Antipas. So well, who's that? Let me tell you, the Herods, they had a dynasty. And all the Herods, every one of them, were what you call Edomites. You say, what's an Edomite? Well, it means that they're descendants of Esau. Well, how, how did descendants of Esau get named Edomites? Well, Esau means hairy. Not like Harry Van Epps, but hairy like a little rascal. Like an animal with no sense of God. Esau was one who, who sought to satisfy his own passions, which is why he sold his firstborn birthrights for a pot of red stew. Red stew. Red stew? That's why they call him Edom. Edom means red. His descendants, therefore, are Edomites. They settled on the land south of the Dead Sea, covered in red sandstone. This is where they worship their fertility gods. This is, is where they frequently attack the Israelites. Now, the Israelites are descendants of Esau's twin brother, Jacob. You remember him? His name was changed to Israel. Remember, Abraham had a son of promise, Isaac, but Isaac had twin boys. The Lord chose one over the other before either were born, according to Romans, right? Chose Jacob over Esau. When he chose Jacob, he changed Jacob, gave him a new name, Israel. And his descendants are going to be the Israelites. Esau, Harry, who sold his birthright for red stew, is called Edom. And so his followers are Edomites. If you think about this, right after this happened, well, I say right after, it was 1,500 years after this. 1,500 years after this, you remember a guy in the book of Esther who was trying to destroy the Jews, wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth? His name was Haman. He is an Edomite. After that, 4th century B.C., Alexander the Great conquers the known world. Greek becomes the common language. Edomites... They, they, they try to force the Edomites into Judaism. And they end up calling them Edomians. Do you see where they're located on the map up here? Just south of the Dead Sea? Well, when the Romans take control after the Greeks, they appoint an Edomian named Herod, who takes to himself, he's first appointed as governor, but he, he, he does some things that kind of ends up uh, proclaiming himself to be the king of the Jews. He's known as the king of Judea, which means the land of the Jews. He's known as Herod the Great. Herod the Great. He's the one who will ask the wise men, where is he born king of the Jews? Remember that? Matthew 2. He's the one who has all the male children of the Israelites under two slaughtered in an attempt to prohibit the incarnate arrival of Christ in Bethlehem. Herod, an Edomian, 
a descendant of Esau. He is a ruthless individual. He has his wife's brother drowned in the pool there at the palace for offending him. Uh, the Sanhedrin, members made up of 70 Sadducees and Pharisees, he had 46 of them killed. 46 out of 70. Slaughtered. Not only that, he'll kill his own family members. He killed one of his mother-in-laws. Killed several of his wives. He had 10 wives. So I guess if you've got 10 mother-in-laws, you can maybe kind of understand that one. But, but, but he also killed some of his own kids. Killed some of his own sons. Why? He considered them to be a threat to his power. This guy's ruthless. Octavius, remember here, Caesar Augustus, who issued the decree that all the world should be taxed? He said, it is better to be Herod's pig than to be one of his children. This guy's a maniac. And so you remember Joseph and Mary, they take the incarnate Christ to Egypt. And they don't come back until they're told Herod dies. And when Herod dies, his responsibilities are divided into fourths. This is why his sons are called tetrarchs. That's what tetrarch means, fourths. Herod Antipas is one of the tetrarchs, and he's just as bad as his dad. He's just as wicked. The acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. He's the one who's going to put John the Baptist to death. His nephew, who's one of the grandsons of Herod the Great, is a guy named Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is the one who puts James to death as you're reading through your Bible and you get to Acts 12. His son, Herod Agrippa II, is the one who said to the Apostle Paul, I think it's around Acts 25, 26, he's the one who said that, that, that your, your, your learning has driven you mad, Paul. It's driven you mad, this, this stuff over the gospel. The Herods are a classic depiction of hairy animals who are insensitive to God, who hate Jews, hate Jews, and they despise the Messiah. If you go back and you read in your Bible in Genesis about Esau, when Jacob, it looked like, was the underdog, I mean, he's just got these 12 boys, they're just it's tribes and so forth, and they're headed off to Egypt for 430 years. Esau at that time, he had a family growing of chiefs. Magnificent power. And that's why when you get to this time period, you see the Edomites, man, Herod, these guys, they're strong. But the Lord passes judgment on them and, and reveals that judgment in a book in your Bible called Obadiah. He talks about the Edomites being wiped off of the face of the earth. Well, when Herod Agrippa II, the one who spoke to Paul, when he's done, guess what? The Herods are done. The Herod dynasty comes to an end. They fall out of favor with Rome. They're gone. They're wiped off the face of the earth, just as the Lord predicted 800 years earlier. And this Herod Antipas, who put John the Baptist to death, is the tetrarch over northern Israel, Galilee. He's the one who built the capital city of Galilee called Tiberias in order to kind of butter up the emperor. He's the one who divorces his wife to marry his sister-in-law. She was married to his brother Philip. Philip and Herodias come to visit. He has an affair with her. 
She divorces Philip. He divorces this, his wife at that time, and the two of them get together in marriage. She is also his niece. She was the daughter of his oldest brother, Aristobulus. Yes, this is what John the Baptist spoke against. The kind of adultery, the kind of incest that he said is abhorrent. And that is why they took off his head. That is Herod Antipas. Herodias is the feminine form of Herod. And she was his niece and his sister-in-law before she became his wife. Well, Antipas has heard a lot about Christ. Possibly through John the Baptist. Possibly from Chusa. You know, Chusa was, was uh, one of his stewards. And Chusa had a wife named Joanna. He said, well, why are you telling us this? Well, she's one of the ladies that Christ heals in Luke 8. And so Chusa is working for Herod Antipas, and she takes what part of his money that he makes as a salary, and she gives it to Christ's ministry to support him and his disciples. She's one of the women who's going to run to the tomb on Sunday morning following the resurrection and finding the tomb empty. She is one of the women who runs to the disciples, and she tells Peter and John and the others, He is risen. He is risen. That's Joanna. Her husband, Chusa, manages Herod Antipas' household estate there in Galilee. They probably live in Tiberias. But she has made the trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. So she's in town for Passover. She's in town when all of this is occurring. And Herod Antipas has this curious fascination with Christ. Maybe because of his relationship to John the Baptist. Maybe because of what he has heard through Chusa. Maybe because of what he's heard from the chief priest and the Sadducees and Pharisees, Sanhedrin. But at some point, some point, word came to Christ earlier that Herod was looking to put him to death. And Christ's response to that was, you tell that fox, you tell that fox, I'll continue to drive out demons and heal today, tomorrow, and the next day. He had absolutely no fear of this ruthless murderer who has committed adultery and incest. However, now that his time has come, Herod Antipas is excited to finally meet the Christ in person. The Christ. This one who called him a fox. He said, let's see you do some miracles. I hear you've been doing them all throughout Galilee for all these years. Let me see you do them. Do some miracles for me. Perform. Christ wouldn't do it. I, I'm not an entertainer. That's not the purpose for this meeting. Well, I've heard a lot about you. From John, from Chusa, from the chief priest, the scribes. They've told me a lot. And Luke 23 records, true to his character, Herod Antipas, this Edomian, this Edomite, with his soldiers, treated Christ with contempt and mocked him, and then arrayed him in splendid clothing and sent him back to Pilate. Well, we'll see how that goes next week. What lessons could we learn from this? You know, as I, I read through this several times and I was just thinking to myself, I wonder, do we have any pilots here? Do you know what I mean by that? Do we have any pilots who sit in judgment of Christ? 
Kind of like liberal theologians do in our seminaries where they, they sit in judgment of Christ and they question his deity, they question his authority, they question his word. They're questioning everything. They're humanists who want to put themselves in charge. I don't know if we've got any pilots here or not, but if we do, you know, if you're, you're sitting there wondering, you know, should you acknowledge the lordship of Christ or not? Should I, I bow a knee in submission to him or not? Should I, should I have the truth that I believe, what I, I think and how I live, should that be based on Christ who is the truth or not? If you're sitting there thinking that or have ever thought that, if that's who you are, I want you to know that you will be held accountable for your decisions, but you're not in charge. I know you think you are, but you're not. Listen, Christ is in total control of everything happening here. See, Pilate thinks that he is cross-examining Christ. The truth is Christ is searching out Pilate. There's not a thing that Christ doesn't know about Pilate. So don't think or, or don't live with this illusion that somehow because you're making decisions about your life that somehow or another you are in control, that you're in charge. You're not. See, Pilate will learn that. When we get over to chapter 19, Pilate will say to Christ, don't you know I've got authority to release you or crucify you? And Christ says, bless your heart. You are so delusioned. You are so delusioned. You would have no authority over me unless it's given to you from above. Christ has pity for this guy. Does he have pity for you? So the first lesson is, are you, even though you're responsible for your decisions, are you aware of the fact that you are not in charge? You're not. The Lord is sovereign. And realizing that, how does that impact the decisions that you make? The second lesson that I see here is that we are to live according to truth or our life is going to be based on lies. See, if we're not born again in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, it really doesn't matter how smart you are, does it? Does it matter how many degrees that you've earned? Does it matter how successful you think you are? Does it matter how much you've accomplished? Does it matter how much you've accumulated? Does it matter how great you think you are? You're delusional. Your whole life is built on a lie. If, if you buy into this whole thing that the that men are teaching today, that you were just evolved from nothing for no reason. Can you imagine the people who taught that stuff, who are teaching that stuff, how shocked they are the moment they die? I mean, can you imagine how shocking it must have been for Voltaire or Sigmund Freud or Clarence Darrow or Bertrand Russell or Carl Sagan, Christopher Hitchens? Stephen Hawking. Imagine how shocking it was when they died and realized that they spent their whole life believing a lie. They accumulated all those degrees. They thought they were so smart. They made all of that money from teaching a lie. 
What is the truth? What is truth, Pilate asked. What is it? Well, I tell you, truth is not simply what you believe. Because you could, if you believe a lie, it's still a lie. So the truth is not based on what you believe. The Greek word here for truth, aletheia, means unhid. Christ unhides the truth. He reveals truth. He reveals the truth about our creator, about our redemption, about our purpose for life, about how we are born again, about the whole reason for why we are born again, or our whole reason for being here on earth. He reveals all of that. Pilate asked, what is truth? But he never dealt with the answer. So how did things end for Pilate? Do you know? You know, Eusebius, the, the, the uh, great historian, records that Pilate eventually commits suicide. Why? He saw the truth. He heard the truth. He passed judgment on the truth. But he never knew the truth. Do you know the truth? You know, Christ said back in John 8, if you know the truth, it will set you free. Free from what? Free from your bondage to sin. And free from the death that bondage brings. Do you know the truth? If you have any questions about that, there'll be somebody at the Connect table to help you. I'll be glad to meet with you this week. I'm meeting with a couple of families in our church this week about membership. I'll be glad to meet with you as well. Um, I'd be glad to do the best I can at answering your questions. Stand with me as we pray. Lord, we want to thank you for sending the truth, for revealing the truth, for redeeming us according to truth. And Lord, I would just ask this morning that if there is anyone here who has been educated beyond their intelligence to believe in the lies of men would you please remove the scales from their eyes remove the hardness from their hearts and transform their lives according to truth would you have them Lord to surrender to the Lordship of Christ who will set them free from their bondage of sin and the sin that leads to their death. Father, I would ask that for them this morning, that they would not continue to live with this delusion that, that the decisions that they make put them in control of their life. Lord, we know that you are sovereign and we know that you are gracious. And for that we are thankful. And so we pray, we pray in the name of Christ that you will fulfill your will in our lives to the glory of your name. Amen.